In your Bible with me to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 8 through 15. Continuing through this great little letter about how to follow Jesus, and Paul has packed a lot of information in here. Um, this is about 20 years after the resurrection, and this is a little church in, in modern, modern day Turkey, and the big message we keep hearing over and over again, and I hope you, you and I don't forget this, is stay close to Jesus. Um, don't, don't abandon, don't stray from the gospel that the same Jesus who created all things is the same Jesus in love who bled to reconcile us to him, which is, just changes the whole direction in which we live. And so let's jump into this. I'll read the text and we'll, we'll pray. It says, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. This is the word of our God. He's speaking to us. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy. He has spoken to us today in love. Let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that we would rejoice at your word today, at the gospel of Jesus, like one who finds great treasure that we might suddenly see again how rich we are in Christ. And so with that, we need your spirit again, as we just sang, to witness this gospel to us, to give us understanding, to give us wisdom, so we can grow in our love for Jesus and our ability to love one another like Jesus. And so we ask that your gospel would change us today. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know how many of you have heard of Bart Ehrman, a modern-day Bible teacher. Well, formerly Bible teacher, now he's a church historian, no longer a Christian. But he, he tells a story this way of, of how he grew up in the church. Uh, he went to Sunday school. He spent a lot of time in and around the Bible, and about high school he started to take his faith seriously, uh, where he just had a season where he just devoured everything that was in this book. Right. He, he was convinced by Jesus that what we just read is true, um, that he was a sinner and he needed a savior. And because of that, as he got interested in the Bible, he decided to go to Moody Bible Institute. All he knew about Moody is they studied the Bible a lot. And so that's what he did. He went and learned Greek and Hebrew. And he became a person who could compare in Greek how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John told the, the, the story of the gospel. But then he also tells in 
over time how his love for Jesus then grew, grew cold for a lot of reasons. But there was a process that he moved away from being a, a Bible scholar to, to becoming a skeptic, to rejecting the, the claims of the gospel, to now he's no longer, as far as I know, a follower of Jesus. And just listen what Airman, this is how Airman describes what it is like to leave Jesus. And this is what Paul is talking about as well. So he's, he's written books and talked about this. So Bart Ehrman says, a lot of people do feel angry when they deconvert. And a lot of people have asked me whether I felt or do feel angry. But I've never felt that way. I had more of a sense of loss than of anger. I just felt like something was being taken away from me and that created a massive void in my life. I felt empty, a kind of emptiness. So then I had to figure out how to fill that void, that emptiness, with other things. So I share that story, someone real, because Ehrman is a living example of what Paul, the apostle here, is warning the Colossians against. Right? Your faith is solid now. You love Jesus now. You're excited about the gospel now. But watch out. Guard yourself against ideas, arguments that sound somewhat convincing, against pleas that aren't according to Christ. And, and airmen, by experience, and Paul, by warning, are, are, are warning us, are, are telling us that a life without Jesus is a life that is not full. It's actually empty. That's the language he's going to use this morning. That life in Jesus and with Jesus is a fullness with God that we are made for, that we are designed for, and life without Jesus leaves you with this haunting emptiness, wondering why you're here and what it's all about. And so, this is in the midst of a sustained argument by Paul, and so we're going to ask, what arguments does Paul give us? So what, what do we get when you come to Jesus in the gospel? What, what is this fullness that we receive that motivates us to, to stay close to Jesus. Because that's really the, the call here, is, is stay close to Jesus, build up the faith you have, rooted in him, and watch out that you don't get tricked or deceived by these other ideas. And so there's a lot in this passage. This, this could be a, easily be two or three weeks worth of stuff, but we're just going to walk through it, and if it stirs your questions, conversation, please, please come talk about it. But the that there are arguments and gospel truths here that are coming after us to show us the fullness we have in Jesus. And the argument number one is just that, in verse 9, that in Jesus, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right, that's point number one. We're filled in Christ. So we've got to talk about what that means, right? Because this is the argument. Verse 8, make sure you're on guard, see to it no one takes you captive. Verses 9 to 15 gives you a whole bunch of arguments to preach to yourselves and to one another that are closely connected, intimately connected to Jesus. It's all this in him and with him language, uh, together with Christ. And so when, Jesus, when Paul says here that in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, this is part of Paul's argument, why you do not want to leave Jesus. So just let that statement wash over you afresh. The whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. That everything God is, is found and is actually 
in the person of Jesus. I'm sure maybe you've heard of this, this very Western American claim that every religion has a little bit of God. Um, part, of, part of just trying to make a way to have peace is there's different ideas on who God is. The claim of the gospel, the claim that Paul is making, the claim that Jesus made, right? all of who God is, is found in Jesus. Right? There's nowhere else to look. If all the fullness of God is in Jesus, where else would you go? You can add to that picture, right? That all the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. Um, meaning the fullness of God was found in a human being. In real space, in real time, in human history. Okay. Ideas are great. Philosophy, right? I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a few of us here that would enjoy philosophy. Some of us would fall asleep. <laughs> But it's just loving ideas. Part of what this is showing you is that bodies are better than ideas. Our bodies are what convince us of the truth of ideas. That the fullness of God dwelled in a body so that we might know who God is. So this is the beauty of bodies. Bodies make relationships possible. To walk together, to talk together, to hug, to have someone wipe away the tears from your eyes, uh, to eat together, to laugh together, right? To, to, to be everything that it means to be human. And that's how Jesus was described of being, as the fullness of God dwelled in him bodily, right? Here's one of his mission statements. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Right? The fullness of God dwelled in him bodily. He was eating and drinking. Apparently did it well because they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard and he hung out with all the wrong kinds of people. Right? And that's when you read the Gospels, when the fullness of God in a body. I mean, just let that blow your mind yet again that the sheer depths that the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being condescended to come down on earth in a body to be with people like us. And all of our sinfulness, but all, just all of our bodiliness, the fluids, the smells, <laughs> uh, everything it means to be human. I mean, the picture of the gospel in that phrase is God with infinite, co- ultimate cosmic power, seemingly unapproachable, who is unashamed to get off his throne, come down to earth, so to speak, to get on the floor to look his children in the eye with physical human eyes. It's what good parents do, right? They they humble themselves and they come down and they they play with their kids, they talk to their kids, they they crouch down. I wrestle with Samson and I hold back my strength because I love him. I don't want him to get hurt, but it's it's a humility, it's a condescension. It's entering into his world. What Paul is saying in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, dwells bodily. He's saying that's what happened in the Gospels. But he's also saying it in present tense. That hasn't changed. When Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection, he ascended into heaven with an actual physical body filled with all the fullness of God. And so the mystery that we hold true is right now Jesus has a body. He has eyes to see you. 
He has a heart that when he looks at you and your sorrow and your suffering and your sin, um, well, just the way he said it in Matthew, he looked at the crowds and he looked at them and his heart went out to them. He, he moved, was moved with pity because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's the audacity of Paul's claim. The fullness of God dwells bodily, and that is still true even as Jesus ascended into heaven. You talk to Jesus the same way you talk to someone else with a body. And there's more, because it's not just that the fullness of God is, dwells with Jesus. It's, it goes further to say you, y'all, right? This is Greek plural language, the church, have been filled in him. So follow the logic if all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus and you have been filled in Jesus, that means all the fullness of God now dwells with you and in you because you're in him. Right. Jesus is full of God's presence and by faith, Christian, you have the fullness of God with you in him. And what does it mean to be filled in a person? I mean, there's a, probably a bunch of different ways you could think about it. I mean, at minimum, it's permanent personal nearness. God is with you. Right. That's what makes it so hard about us being bodies. You cannot be in one person. One, you can't be in more than one place at one time, right? I, as your pastor, I can only show up in one place. I can only give you so much of my attention, my time, my affection. No one human being can satisfy and fill another person, partially because of sin. If you get too close and you're there too long, we get sick of each other, <laughs> right? But with Jesus is a fullness of God in him, in you. An intense, full nearness of God. There's other illustrations that Jesus talked about it this way. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches in John 15. Meaning we're made of the same stuff. We are bound together. Partakers of the divine nature. So you put all that together, I mean, I think what Paul is, is highlighting here, to walk into a church looks so ordinary, we're ordinary people, and that the claim is everyone who is in Christ by faith is full of God, is full of Jesus. We are, walking, we are God's tabernacle, his, his temple. He's with us. What we have now in Jesus is better than what the, the ancient Israelites had in the tabernacle because we have Jesus. We have been filled. You get to enjoy his presence and learn how to live with your new roommate. Right. And so, you just pause there. Right? As if this is true, you have the fullness of God in Jesus, and the fullness of Jesus is in you. Let him lift up your head. Right? God is the lifter of our head. I mean, is there anything more honoring than these basic, core, simple truths of the gospel? If time and energy and presence among us shows love, what does it mean to be in Christ? What is God saying to you who have been filled in Christ? I'm connected to you. Right, so when you walk around feeling defeated, feeling alone, insignificant, bored, empty, anxious, right, we're, we're not... Trusting what Paul says is true, that we have the very fullness of God with us. And he's promised not to leave us alone. We are the place where heaven and earth intersect. 
If you let that argument just shake around between your ears, <laughs> when somebody comes and says, hey, I had this great spiritual vision, I went to heaven, it was phenomenal, why would you, why would you need to go to heaven if heaven's already come to you? Why do you need to talk about angels and what they're doing in heaven if you have the very fullness of God dwelling with you? That's Paul's setting that argument up here, right here. Right? So you can throw out your heaven tourism books. <laughs> you have Christ with you. Right? Second argument. Right? First reason to stay close to Jesus, you get the fullness of God in him. That's the promise. That's the argument. And then he goes on and says, In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Right? Seems like a really weird transition. <laughs> but this is the conversation Paul is having, right? That I know this isn't the story that you tell yourself when you get out of bed in the morning, thank God I'm circumcised in Christ. But I'm hoping when you hear what this means, you will. Right? This is the argument. Stay close to Jesus because you don't need to be circumcised. It's already happened in Christ. And he's talking... In a Jewish context, for sure, people who have that, that understanding, because circumcision was an ancient Hebrew rite that goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 17. When God said, this is my covenant, and this is how you shall keep my covenant, you and all of your offspring, all of your descendants. You shall, you and, this is my covenant, you shall keep between me and you and all your offspring. After you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And that's, that's the story of the nation of Israel. Right? If you became a, a follower of Yahweh, whether you were Jewish or not, they practiced believer's circumcision. Uh, you would submit to saying, I belong to God. I will now listen to his voice, trust in his promise to provide forgiveness of sins, and I will keep his commandments, keep the law, all of it. The journey begins with circumcision. And that's what it was. Circumcision was a sign in the Old Testament that you belonged to God, the maker of heaven and earth. Right? That's part of it. It was a physical mark. Right? It was a bloody sign as well that communicated there's something wrong with you that needs to be removed. The blood has to be shed to heal the human heart, to forgive sin. And so that was the practice. I mean, just imagine you, you grew up in the, in the ancient Jewish church and everything you've ever been told is what it means to be a follower of God is to be circumcised. And then someone like Paul shows up and says, you don't need to be circumcised anymore. It's identity crisis. But what's interesting is in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, the goal of circumcision was not just to participate in a ritual. Right, so Deuteronomy 10.16, it says, The Lord has set his love on your, you and your fathers. Right? Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and don't be stubborn anymore. <laughs> it's a blunt statement for you. Because the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Uh, bribe. Right? This is what Moses and all the prophets continually said. You, you may be circumcised on the outside, but that does not mean you've got this thing nailed. Right? That does not mean you're not a stubborn pain because you're not listening and keeping God's commandments. Therefore, circumcise your heart. He's saying you don't love the God you say you love. 
The ritual doesn't change you. What you need is an inner spiritual transformation, a circumcision of the heart. Because circumcision, and this is the point, and this will help make this passage clear, it was a sign of spiritual reality. Right? That there's something unclean, something about humans that needs removed from us. And it manifests itself in our stubborn nature of not wanting to do what God tells us to do. That's right. this idea. Every human being, I think in general, knows do unto others as we want them to do to us. And some days I just don't want to, even if God told me to, because I'm stubborn. Right. That's the part of me, the part of us, that needs cut off, that needs removed. A circumcision made without hands. And so when Paul says here to the Colossian Christians, he was trying to protect them from who aren't, especially those who aren't culturally Jewish, he's trying to say you don't have to be culturally Jewish to follow Jesus. Right? And so he says, this is what happened on the cross, that in Jesus you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ. And so what it's telling you, part of what happened to you in Jesus when he died is your stubborn nature was punished in him. And when he died and when he was buried, that went down with him. And that stubborn part of you, part of the purpose of the cross, is to circumcise your heart, to make you want to listen to God and keep his commandments. That circumcision made without hands, it didn't tell you in the Old Testament how that was going to happen. And so Paul's explaining one of the unsolved mysteries of the Old Testament. It happened in Jesus when he died on the cross through his circumcision. And what was Jesus' circumcision? Well, he was literally in his body, in his flesh, cut off from God, bore the judgment of hell like we just sang, treated as if he was stubborn and stiff-necked even though he was the perfect, beloved, obedient son of God. All so that we might have our heart melted, have our heart changed, circumcised, and want to follow him. Right? which is a, a phenomenal argument because any Jewish teacher that's going to come to the Colossian church or come to you and I and say, you need to be culturally Jewish. You need to be circumcised. Right? Sure, it's great Jesus forgave your sin, but now that you belong to him, you need to show the world and be marked. And every Christian can say, I don't need to be circumcised because it happened to me already in Christ on the cross. Do you see that? Male and female are now included. Your hearts have been circumcised in Christ. Your hearts have been changed through faith. Right? So there's argument number two. What Paul just did was make it possible for every tribe, every tongue, every nation, male and female, to come and be one in Christ. Right? So expect, when you look at the cross, our hearts ought to be deeply moved by the one who loved us like that who loves stubborn people, who is willing to be crucified for us. So reason number one, don't leave Jesus, because you get the fullness of God. Reason number two is you get, you get a better circumcision. And then reason number three, which explains your circumcision through baptism. Right? So we're, bap we're, 
we're full in Christ, we're circumcised in Christ, and now we're also baptized in him. All right, and, and this is what's really interesting. It gets a little more technical, but I'll try and keep it up here. And if, if you don't understand, please, please come find me. I'll try again, and if I, don't, if I fail, talk to Pastor Jim. He, he, he's got this. <laughs> um, all right, part of what Paul does in, in verse 12 is he explains the circumcision of Christ with this process of being buried with Jesus in your baptism. All right, so it's not talking about immersion per se. It's just talking about what happened when Jesus died. He's still talking about, he's trying to explain spiritual reality of what happened to Jesus on the cross. And what happened is, you're so filled in Christ, you're so connected in Christ, that when Jesus died, you died with him. When he was buried, you were buried with him. When he rose from the dead, you rose with him. That Jesus' story is now your story. That's part of being baptized into him. You're fully immersed in his life. And that's what explains the circumcision. When Jesus was raised from the dead by God's powerful work because you died in him and your sin went down with him and is removed from you that way, you get to experience resurrection power the same way Jesus did. When you trust Jesus, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead begins to work in you, begins to dwell in you, and starts to change you because you are connected to him. You see that? I mean, but he's trying to explain circumcision. That's the, the really weird part for us in our Western ears. Is when was I circumcised? Well, when Jesus died and was buried. And when I was baptized, I was telling the world that Jesus' story is my story and that's what I deserved. And so he connects it that way. And so just pause there. Is there any story that so fully immerses your life in someone else's? You get grace upon grace that's just given to you through faith. It's an identity you have not earned. It's an identity you receive. I am treated in Christ as if I have died, taken all the judgment I deserve for my particular sins as if I had then had been told by God, you are innocent and I'm going to raise you to new life. And now in Christ you are treated as if I had never committed any sin and as if I had done the right thing all along anyway. That's the Heidelberg Catechism. That's part of what happens when you're circumcised in Christ when you were buried with him in baptism. Baptism is a sign that you are joined together, and that is your story. So if you want to understand these Christian uh, sacrament words, circumcision and baptism are signs of God's grace to his people that have to be accomplished through judgment. And Paul says that happened through Jesus. Circumcision was a bloody sign that sin needs to be punished and removed from us. That's what happens in Christ. Baptism is a bloodless sign, right, done with water. That again, I need to go through God's judgment to have it be buried and then to rise up new, washed clean, resurrected to a new life as God's forgiven child. Holy and blameless above, and above reproach, as it says. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're just starting, right? 
When you stand up to be baptized as a new follower of Jesus, this is what would happen. You're saying out loud, what happened to Jesus is what should have happened to me. I can't believe he loved me so much to do that for me. And the sign is a spiritual reality. It's pointing to that. The baptism itself doesn't save you. It's just a sign. It's telling you a story. We go a little bit further, a little bit deeper down this baptism rabbit hole. <laughs> um, which then leads to questions, because as a church, all right, and just in the history of the church, um, some of us wonder why we connect circumcision and baptism, and why do we baptize babies? Because we're Presbyterian, and that's what we do. And that's part of, part of the answer, not the whole answer, is found here. Circumcision is the fulfillment, or baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. You don't have to be circumcised because that happened at the cross. Baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. And you're saved by faith, not your baptism. Right? That's what it says there. You're raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Right? And so what we do as Christians, we say, okay, if baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision, we ask, well, who was to be circumcised in the Old Testament? It was believers and their children. Everyone who trusted in the the faith in the God of Abraham and trusted in his promises that the Messiah would come. And that included infants. And what we do then as Christians who who have been circumcised, we don't have to do that anymore, we say, okay, well, we're baptized. Who should be baptized? Believers, all those who trust in Jesus, the God of Abraham, and all those promises. And we also include their children. Because the sign doesn't save, only the faith that connects you to Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus' story becomes your story. That's, that's the short version. Feel free to ask questions. It's a process as you try and figure this out, of how, why we do it. But you really can see the logic of when he says, you've been circumcised in Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Those two ideas are connected. The bigger point you were baptized in Christ. You're free from judgment because he was judged. And that's, that's my last point here, and we'll, we'll bring this to a close. We'll have to talk about the, the authorities and, and triumphing next time. Right? We're forgiven in Jesus. That's the big idea. Because Paul ends this by saying, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here now I want to convince you why you need uh, Christ's baptism. It's It's the bad news of the gospel. I'm dead in my trespasses. I cannot get God to draw near to me because there's something wrong with me. I am uncircumcised in my flesh. Um, I've caused all kinds of damage by my own stubborn will, offending God and hurting people. Right? And so what Paul describes here of being dead in our trespasses, saying, I am dead to God by virtue of my willful choices. That's what a trespass is. I chose to do that because I wanted to. And a trespass is against the will of someone over you, your creator. Right? 
We're dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. It's caused all kinds of problems without that heart being changed. And then the second, he uses this language to describe the effect of it. My sin is a crude debt with God. And it, it hovers over us like debt does with its legal demands. It says, you owe me. You owe me justice. Every person in this room outside of Jesus has a legal process, a legal rap sheet in God's presence. We call it guilt. And it controls us, because that's what debt does, right? It follows us wherever we go until it's paid off. That's what guilt does. When you feel guilty, just because you feel guilty in your house, it doesn't mean you can leave that guilt when you go to work which then makes us cranky with people or, or co-workers that may or may not have anything to do with them. Right? Guilt makes us weird and angry and hostile to others. We hide, we blame, we hate ourselves. It's like a loan payment rep ready to steal your income, your joy, your peace. Right? It's just always there. God is not okay with you because you owe him. That's outside of Christ. It is legal demands. We have to pay it. So how do you pay off the debt that we have accrued with things we have done in our bodies to other people with bodies made in the image of God. Right. Paul's answer is in Christ. In Christ. And I want you to hear how astounding this is. So Becky Pippert wrote a great book, and she tells a story of taking a systems of counseling class at Harvard University. And, and when she was in there learning how to help people deal with their guilt, this, this rap sheet that we're talking about. And their, their professor told this story of a young man who was angry, who hated his mom, and it was controlling all of his interactions with other people. Um, he was just an angry dude. And through counseling, this man got diagnosed. You have an anger problem. He was seeing for the first time how much his anger has controlled him. Of course, he made some progress in seeing the problem, seeing his stubbornness, right? seeing the uncircumcision of his flesh. He started to see it was on his rap sheet, and that's when Becky in the class raised her hand and asked the professor and says, okay, let's say now that he sees he has a problem, and he comes back and asks, how do I forgive my mother for the very real hurt she's caused? And here's what this non-Christian, secular, somebody who loves people professor said. Eventually, he'll have to learn to live with it and hopefully not be controlled by his anger because I don't know how to help someone forgive. Of course, now, everybody raised their hand in the class. <laughs> and as they peppered the professor with questions, he got frustrated, he got a little bit testy. He said, you know, don't, for, don't force your neurosis about forgiveness on other people. To which Becky would say, well, is loving your enemies neurotic? And then this professor said at Harvard, if you guys are looking for a changed heart, I think you're looking in the wrong department. Right? So not beating up on him, he loves people, but do you hear what he's saying? I can show you you have a problem, but I cannot circumcise your heart. I cannot deal with that thing. I can't erase the debt you owe. Nor can I erase the debt you're collecting from everyone who ticks you off because of your own debt that's hurting other people. And so that's where Paul says, Look at Christ crucified. Because when Jesus died on the cross, 
what, what Pontius Pilate did is he took a placard that said King of the Jews and he nailed it on top. That's what I think Paul's doing. Paul says, I want you to look at that sign. And all that debt and all of the, its legal demands were nailed above Christ on that cross. And see, that is where all of, all of God's judgment fell and that's how your debt was paid. That's that great word in verse 14. All of your trespasses has been paid. All of them. Even the ones you haven't committed yet. All is all. It's inclusive. It was nailed to the cross so God treated Jesus as if he owed a debt. That's amazing grace. And what he did with it, right? says canceling the record, it's, it's erasing it. It's gone. Forever. You can do that this week. Maybe it'll be good for you to say, I, in Christ, everything is just a white sheet. Actually, you can even substitute in Jesus' perfect obedience, but on the other side of me, by myself, right, that's all the stuff we did wrong. Jesus' story, if you're in Christ, you get the fullness of God and the fullness of forgiveness. Permanently. And so that's the argument. It's arguments and gospel truth, right? Why would you ever leave Jesus? You can see why this would leave a profound, deep emptiness. If, you, if this is not true, really true, historically true, if this isn't a fact, but also if you walk away because you lose the fullness of God, you lose your stubborn nature being changed. Um, is there anything better than a resurrection? in Christ Jesus, of being included in the new creation, baptized into a condemnation-free relationship with Jesus? I mean, can you really get a fuller, clean slate if you're already, if everything has been erased? See, this is the fullness we get from God in the gospel alone is what motivates all of us to stay close to Jesus. I'll end with this great quote from Robert Capon. You know, if you really get this, if you understand how radical the gospel is, right, it's going to change the way you relate to people. It's going to change your anger. The debt keeping you, we continually hold, right? The human race, Capon says, is positively addicted to keeping records and remembering scores. And what we call our life is, for the most part, juggling accounts in our head. How well I'm doing. And yet, if God has announced anything in Jesus... Right, hear that word, you have to be in Christ. Is that he, for one, has pensioned off the bookkeeping department permanently. <laughs> That's closed. No one's going to call you. Only if you're in Christ through faith. That is, that is a message that will change you. Well, according to Paul, through Jesus, it's changing the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, that we made the mystery and, and the beauty and the truth of being in Christ a little clearer, uh, that you have circumcised our hearts and you are changing us. And so I pray if there are any who are outside of Christ, they would run to him for refuge and find that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, waiting to swoop us up um, with amazing grace. And for those of us who are 
secure in our faith, I pray we would stand firm on these and these would cause us to, to know and experience right now the fullness of what we have in Christ. So may that fullness satisfy us, uh, satisfy us deeply as we walk and seek to follow him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.